there are certain things that I do currently that remind me that I'm firmly middle-aged. I sat down with the boys to play PlayStation the other day, and I got mad when the game turned on because it had to upload and download. And I heard myself say what I have heard my dad say a million times. Why won't it just let me play? I was a moment away from saying, what are these buttons for? From time to time, I drink apple cider vinegar uh, like a legitimately old person. And there are even moments where I find it refreshing, which makes me sad deep down in my heart. I call my children baby the way that my dad called me baby. I was 38 years old. The man was still calling me baby. It was weird. But the biggest thing that I do that reminds me of my age is I, I repeat myself. You do too. We repeat ourselves primarily because the stories that we've been given to tell, they are stories of repetition. Something takes place, we love it, it affects us, it changes us, it challenges us, and we want to make sure that we share that story with everyone. When we are in John's Gospel, we have a young man who is telling us numerous things about this Jesus who he is interacting with. When we get to 1 John, as I shared with some of us last week, if you were here, we are with an older John. But John's repeating himself consistently through the book, and you'll see the repetition and how that repetition affects and influences the decisions that he makes and that he speaks about when he's having conversations with this church at Ephesus. He, he repeats himself, and he lets them know certain things about God. Many believe that this letter that we have that we call 1 John was actually a sermon that he preached to the church at Ephesus. We see it because there's no introduction, there's no conclusion, it's just a, a sermon, it seems. And as he repeats himself throughout this sermon, he says things that we know, that we're familiar with, and they are things that you find embedded in 1 John. One of our elders will sit down with us from time to time, and he will talk to us about something, and he will let you know, hey, I've got a 30-second version of this, I've got a 3-minute version of this, I've got a 13-minute version of this, which is not a multiple of the same thing, but we go with it, and I've got a 30-minute version of this. When you're in John's, when you're in 1 John and compare it to John's Gospel, you see that he is telling us an abbreviated story of what he has already said to us from the Gospel of John with some... Uh, actually application for us and for things for us to consider. So if you've got your Bible with you, I would like for you to open it to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 5 and we're going to take it through chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John 1, 5 through 2, verse 2. Because Though we believe the Bible is inerrant and authoritative, we don't believe that the numbering system always is. And we're going to read these verses looking at what the Scripture says to us and then we will work through them together as a faith family today. And if you're a guest with us, welcome to our faith family. It reads this. This is the message we have heard from him and that we declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying, and we do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from righteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Uh, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sin, but also those of the whole world. As we look into this scripture today, we're going to pursue one central idea and see the way that it manifests the text. And that central idea is this. Only the light of God can overcome sin. Only the light of God can overcome sin. When you see in verse 5, this is the message that we've heard from Him and declare to you that God is light. There's no darkness in Him. This is rooted in what John has said throughout his gospel. Throughout John's gospel, he has repeated himself as to the value, as to the importance, as to the necessity of the fact that there is one hope in this world, and that is the light of God. Jesus says in John 3, verses 19 through 21, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But if anyone lives by the truth, comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here in the text, Jesus is pointing out the darkness of our current state. That each and every person in this room is bound by darkness, unable to overcome darkness. We cannot make decisions in light of darkness. Our sinful state has put us into quite the predicament. Yet this Jesus in clarity says to us, even though you are in darkness, I am the light of the world. Jesus calls us to interact with him as the light of the world. If you've ever been in a dark space, you have noticed at some point that in the midst of that darkness, you're looking, you're trying to get your eyes to fixate, to focus, to do the right thing. You're trying to see where you should go. When I wake up in the morning, which is relatively early, I will get ready in the restroom where people get ready. And after I have done that, I begin to make a move across our bedroom floor, walking in darkness. And all that I'm looking for to guide me so that I don't fall over the bed or the dresser, or one of the numerous things that my children and or dog have left in my floor is the light from underneath our bedroom door. We are drawn to light. It guides, it directs, it dictates for us the steps that we can take. And Jesus says to us, in a dark world, He's the one that guides and offers light. Jesus would go on to use a comparison at the end of John 11, though, where He says, if anyone walks during the night, he stumbles because the light 
is not in him. That is a figure of speech. It's pointing out to the believing people, or rather to the, to the believing people and to the unbelieving people, a walk in darkness will cause us to stumble. So when you look to this passage, what we are seeing Jesus say to us is, through the writer John, who spent time with Jesus, interacted with Jesus, loved Jesus, and was loved by Jesus, there is one light that guides us, and that is the person of Jesus. God is light, Jesus is light, and in Him there's no darkness. When we look to this passage, we are seeing that what sin does. So if we're looking at this text, we're going to see a couple of rhythms throughout it. One is our sinless state has separated us from God. Or rather, our sinful state has separated us from God. Because we are sinners, we are unable to be in right relationship with God in and of our own power. Our sinful state has separated us from God. The counterpoint to that is that God's sinless Son restores us to God, reconciles us to God, makes us right with God. Then you'll notice in the passage how John's going to offer us some comparisons to keep in mind as we look at the text. He, he says this to us in verse 6, If we say... We have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in darkness. We are lying. The reason that he would point this out is there were a group of people who have left the church at Ephesus who were claiming to be sinless, who believed that their own effort and own power had restored them to this place where they were not bound by sin. They had overcome it in and of their own power. And John, as he notices this, sees the darkness and the hypocrisy within each of them. If we are claiming to have fellowship with God, yet we walk in darkness, that's a lie. If we are finding our happiness in darkness, that's a lie. If we are interacting with darkness so often that there's no real light that we are spending time in or we're interacting with, yet we're claiming fellowship, that's a lie. It really does undo this idea of the cultural Christianity we see so present in many of our lives. That we would get together in spaces like this and believe the right thing to do is, is come to church on a Sunday morning as long as we don't have 27 other things that would typically preoccupy our schedule. If we're going to claim fellowship with God, John says, light is necessary. It's an introduction to these conditional clauses of John where he says, if you say that you have fellowship, you, yet you walk in darkness, that's denial of the need for God. His counterpoint to that is this. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so we, what we have in the text is this uh, tension, if you will. There, there is the, the tension of a group of people who would claim right standing with God based on their own behavior and the counterpoint to that is 
Those who really belong to God walk in the light of God. That is necessary. It is a requisite for Christian living to be people who are interacting with God. And the way that we interact with God will shape the way that we interact with one another. Do we find that in our own lives? Do do we find ourselves seeking to find joy in the relationships that we have with other believers, even though there may be discrepancies and differences, we have unity with God and unity with God's Son and unity with the light of God based on what God has done to deal with our sin. So for those of us who are in a space like this, who would lean into quarrelsomeness or arguments or finding fault in everything and everyone who disagrees with me on the smallest amount of minutia. What we would say is, the scriptures would point out, we have a unifying factor of the Christian faith that binds every believer together. And that is the person of Jesus is our only hope. Our sinful state needs to be dealt with And only through the sinless Son of God can that be dealt with. If we walk in the light, he says in verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Jesus deals with sin in full. Our sinful state has separated. God's righteous state has reunited. The next conditional clause of the writer John as he deals with the church and talks to the church at Ephesus, is this, if we say we don't have sin, it's almost a build. The first is, if we say we have fellowship yet walk in darkness, now we're at the point where people are declaring that they are sinless. Because that's what he was dealing with in the church at Ephesus. If we say we do not have sin, that's a lie. We are deceiving ourselves... And the truth is not in us. If we get to the place where we believe the only people who behave rightly are us, we have moved this unhealthy view of our place in this world. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Because all of us are bound by sin, unable to overcome sin in and, own, in and of our own power. The counterpoint to this denial is this ownership. There's something to be said about ownership throughout the text. That we would own our sin. That we would see that sin has to be owned. Verse 9. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and He is righteous. Your Bible may read faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is consistent and He is righteous to deal with our our inconsistent unrighteousness. Jesus offered to deal with that. The fact of the matter is, we will not stop doing what we don't confess. Confession is part of the Christian faith. 
It is part of us acknowledging that we are sinners who are consistently fighting this battle with sin. That there is a pull in our hearts toward darkness, yet Jesus continually pulls us to the light. We will not stop doing what we don't confess. There has to be an acknowledgement of this. The word forgive in this passage is pretty powerful, and I don't want us to miss it. To forgive means to send away. So if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins or to send our sins away. Another word to understand what forgiveness means is to separate. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to separate us from our sins. Another word is to tell it to go away. Or or it actually comes from a root which means to tell someone to go away. You may have had to do that recently. It reads this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to tell our sin to go away. Another word is leave. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to make our sins leave us so that we cannot be judged for them. In actuality, it's the New Testament word for divorce. If, he is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to divorce us from our sins. Meaning that those sins, because of Jesus, no longer are united to us. If we confess our sins, that's what Jesus does. The beauty of the work of the light of God is very present here. God has sent your sin away so that you can be with Him in this life and into the next. God is faithful to those who call on Him and is just in dealing with our sin. God has divorced you from your sin, believer, so that you could never be divorced from Him. He has that covenant with us. The question that any believer or any person who interacts with the notion of forgiveness, which is one of the key elements, central aspects of the Christian faith, is this. How is it just... For God to forgive. How is it right that God would look at our sin and be okay with telling that to go away? How is forgiveness justice? And the answer to that is this scriptural idea of atonement. Sin has produced a broken relationship that causes tension between you and God. There is a war present in each and every soul in this space between you and God. You, not just the whole, though the whole world is affected by sin, you and I are affected by sin. We don't simply need to know that Christ has dealt with sin in the ambiguous sense. We need to realize that Christ has dealt with with your sin personally. And if Christ has not dealt with your sin personally, you are still united with it. And the scriptures say that that with that is darkness, with that is condemnation, with that is separation from God. That's where you are. Sin has put us into that place. How is God going to forgive us in a way that can overcome that? Dwight D.L. Moody said this, The voice of sin is loud. 
But the voice of forgiveness is louder. Last week, my friend Zach had some friends over to his house to watch a football game that I'm trying to forget. And for whatever reason, he's in the house and he's watching the game and, and, and his friends have left the room, but they have left their child in the room with him. And that child is watching an iPad while Zach is trying to watch a football game that was of utmost importance until it was all over and now I've cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. The child kept... Okay. The child kept turning the iPad up louder and louder and louder. So the response of my friend Zach, who is not always mature, was to turn the television louder and louder and louder. No matter how loud sin gets in our hearts, the voice of God is louder for his people. Because everything that sin says to you about your value and your worth and your disqualification... Jesus says that in me, you're qualified. In me, you have value. In me, you have worth. In me, though your sins would condemn you to hell, I offer you right relationship with God through me. Jesus is always louder. All of us are sinners in this world, and we will battle sin endlessly. But hear the voice of God louder in those scenarios. Because God says to you, if you confess your sin, if you have trusted in what I have done for you in my son, I will always declare your worth. I will always say to you that you matter. The final thing that we see in these clauses is this. It, we see this denial. When you get to verse 9, where he says, verse 10, rather, The one who said, verse 9, go with me. The one who says he is in the, oh, if we say we have, if we confess our, verse 8, I'm so sorry, guys. If we, I, it's like, just throw it down. Okay, if we, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth of God is not in us. If we are saying that we have not sinned, yet, Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not present in us. We see the notion of ownership here. I don't want you in, but you will. There's one who's going to make you righteous. And John is saying to every believer in this room, I don't want you bound by locked in, caught up in sin. He says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. So the idea that God has forgiven our sins forever on top of forever has is not this license God has given us to sin as we please. He points out, however, that because of the work of Jesus, we as believing people will bring pleasure to God because of Him. Because He is the one who has dealt with our sin completely. This is courtroom language. There's, that's what's being used here when we're talking about righteousness. And, and due to numerous... Reformers, we understand this in the courtroom sense. There's something that's taking place here in the text that we don't need to miss. Jesus, the righteous one, is the one who stands before God as our advocate. The reason that has to be Jesus and not you or me 
is because all of us have baggage that would make it so that we still look like darkness. My wife is a warrior. I really believe that. She functions differently than most people, and I, I just absolutely love it. A few years ago, we did swim. It's the opening meet of the season, and Noli was going to swim. The thing is, it's the very first meet, and all the other kids are in the pool, and my daughter would not get in the pool. Maybe 150 people sitting there, maybe more. I don't know the numbers, actually, because I was just watching my child. And then I see, as Hope walks out of the bleachers to the side of the pool and begins to make the corner. And as she's rounding the corner, everyone in the room thought that she was going to do for this child what everyone has ever done for a child, that she was going to pick up the child and cradle the child and offer her Cheez-Its. That is not what happened. My wife just pushed the kid in and walked back to her seat. A few years ago, she had jury duty, but I was out of town, and we had no one to watch the children. Uh, she showed up at the courthouse with our children. She may have made a couple of them ride through the metal detector, I'm not exactly sure. And they told her, ma'am, we do not offer child care. Her baggage, what she brought with her, kept her from being able to make this decision. This decision as to who was right and who was wrong. Our baggage... Look, I love your kids. They're not baggage. What sin does to weigh us down keeps us from being able to go before God and, and make any statement on our own behalf. Verse 2 of John chapter... First John chapter 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. What we're seeing in this letter from John is that through his atonement, a word, as you look at it, it's not super complicated. It means at one. Because Jesus' work on the cross, He has made it so that we are at one with God. The tension, the division between us and God has been dealt with. And when we look to this, we see that Jesus is saying that He is our advocate. And every believer in this world, every believer in this room, all of us who have confessed our sins to a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, we have an advocate. We are those who can walk in the light. We are the people of God. And when you look to this text, it's talking to us over and over, consistently, directly, that God's people who walk in the light are going to declare light, are going to show light. Light will be a part, a product of our existence in Jesus. We're not saved because of our behavior. We're saved because of the behavior of Christ on our behalf. Yet what Christ has done for us has made it so that we can stand before God as righteous and we can live before our brothers and sisters saying there is hope in this one who has made us that. Matthew says it this way 
John more than likely overheard this as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you may, so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. We've been invited to declare the light of God. We come around that today as a faith family. What I'm going to invite you to do now is, is bow your head. And I'm going to pray over us and our time together. We're going to take communion in just a moment. If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, I would invite you not to take it. I would ask you not to take it. But if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ and you would like to talk to someone about that, I'm, I'll be in our lobby after worship today. I would love to chat with you there. For those of you who are believers, in just a moment I'm going to guide us as we take of the cup and as we and eat the bread that we would remember that God's body was broken for us, that His blood was shed. And I pray that we would look into our own lives and our own hearts and realize that He is for us. He has said over and over that He is for us, that no one can be against us. Father, I pray that You will meet us today as we are interacting with You through song. I pray that You would help us to see You and know You and love You and trust You. Father, I pray over the believers here at Grace Bible that you would lift them up and realize, help them to see the light that you have drawn them to and the hope that you have given them. For those in this room who do not believe, I pray you would save each of them from their sin. That they would realize the at-one-ment of this passage is something you have done and only you can do. And I pray that we will see confession and repentance and turning to you. We trust you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray all of these things. Would you stand with us and take, get the bread and the cup as the band begins to lead us.